Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Carol Benedetto, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources member-led forum and your chair for tonight. Tonight's program, Clean Coal, Myth or Reality, is also part of the Climate One program series. We also welcome our listeners on the radio, and we invite our audience to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. It is my pleasure to introduce our moderator for this evening, Jeff Goodell, who, who will in turn introduce you to our distinguished panelists here to discuss whether there's such a thing as clean coal. Jeff Goodell's latest book, Big Coal, The Dirty Secret Behind America's Energy Future, was chosen as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by Kirkus Reviews. The New York Times called it well-written, timely, and powerful. Goodell is the author of three previous books, including a New York Times notable book, Sunnyvale, a memoir about growing up in Silicon Valley, and New York Times bestseller, Our Story, an account of the nine miners trapped in a Pennsylvania coal mine. He's a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, and his work has appeared in many publications, including The New Republic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Magazine, and Wired. Our thanks to Jeff for moderating our discussion tonight and for fielding your questions from the audience. It's my pleasure to now turn the floor over to Jeff. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to start just by introducing our panel here. Um, This is uh, Bruce Nillis. Uh, the director of the Beyond Coal Campaign at the Sierra Club. Next to Bruce is Joe Lucas, the senior vice president at the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity. Uh, next, we have Ray Lane, managing partner at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. And at the far end there is Julio Friedman, carbon management program leader at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Um, before we start the conversation, which I hope will be vigorous and uh, interactive, I just want to just say a, a word or two about coal and why we, this is such a timely thing to be talking about right now. Um, as we all know, there's a new administration here where climate legislation is moving through Congress. We have uh, the big climate meeting at Copenhagen coming up. And in the midst of all this, coal really is the sort of 800-pound gorilla um, in the energy debate right now. It's the most complicated problem to deal with, a lot of political, economic, and environmental um, issues that are very complex. 
Um, I think that it's really crucial to point out just in the beginning here that coal really is important to civilized life as we know it. Half the electricity in the United States comes from coal right now. Um, so it's not like we're going to be shutting the coal plants down instantly. Um, in China and India, it's a big problem. I mean, a big amount of 70% uh, or so of the electricity in China and India comes from coal also. Um, but in another way, coal is an enormous threat to civilized life as we know it. Uh, more than a third of the man-made CO2 emissions in the U.S. come from, from coal, 40% in the, in, in the world. And the, the sort of difficult and ugly truth is that if, even if everybody's quit driving their SUVs and got on skateboards, we'd still have a really hard time um, averting uh, dangerous climate change if we don't do something about coal. And that's what I'd like to really focus this conversation on tonight, um, which is this question of not only is this idea of clean coal, which is sort of a, a kind of advertising slogan that we can talk a little bit about, but what I really want to focus on is, is, is the idea of burning coal compatible with a world that takes global warming seriously? So I think that's really the heart of the question that we're at right now in, in, our, in our culture. And it's not just a technological issue, which we'll talk a little bit about, but it's also a political issue and an economic issue. And it's also an increasingly volatile issue. We've seen a bunch of marchers in Washington uh, at a coal plant um, a few months ago, and it's something that I think is going to become uh, really the sort of um, flashpoint for a lot of the upcoming debates about what we're going to do with climate. Last thing before we start is um, I want to clarify one acronym that we were probably going to hear a lot tonight, which is something called CCS. Which, is, which stands for Carbon Capture and Storage. It's a way of um, uh, capturing the carbon dioxide from a coal plant. You can do it either with certain kinds of new coal plants by doing it before you burn the coal, or you can bolt on something like a scrubber that you could potentially do uh, at the, on, on a smokestack of an existing plant. We'll go into the, all the details about that. I'm sure we have great experts here on that. But I just wanted to be clear what that CCS refers to. Um, so... I want to just start with, instead of a long presentation, I just want to start with a really blunt question. And I think I want to start with Julio at the, at the end. Um, we've known about the problems of global warming for a long time. We've talk, heard a lot of talk about clean coal. We've seen a lot of television commercials. Um, but the fact is there are no coal plants in the world right now at a commercial scale that capture and sequester CO2. None as far as I know. And why is that? Is, it, this is, is this a political problem? Is this an economic problem? Or is this a technology problem? Before I say something, uh, I'd like to say something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to take some issue with the statement that you made. There, most people don't know this, but there's actually a very large coal plant in the United States that makes synthetic natural gas. It's in North Dakota. And it's been operating for some 20 years. The carbon dioxide from that plant, about half of the CO2 from that plant, is a byproduct of that process. And right now that's going to Canada and being stuffed underground. But that's not generating electricity. The natural gas from that plant is. Right, but it's not a... Right, but I, I, I want to be very clear about this, because when people say there's no such thing as clean coal technology, a lot of people have a picture in their mind of what exactly that means. And you actually get into the hair-splitting business quite quickly. And we'll come back to that throughout the talk. I don't want to dwell on it, but I just want to make that point clear. What I will say to respect to your question is that um, 
30 years ago, we vented sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, and finally we realized that was bad. And it turned out that it cost money to fix it. And people weren't necessarily prepared to pay that money until it became law. And at the point at which it became law and said you really have, can't have to limit the amount of sulfur dioxide you emit, then uh, we entered into a compliance regime, and that cost was actually internalized. We're facing that issue now with respect to CO2 emissions. There's value from burning coal. It makes electricity. People don't burn coal because it's fun. They burn coal because it helps the world. And now we're entering a realm in which we realize that carbon dioxide emissions present a threat to that, and we're trying to figure out what the value of that is. And so really at the heart of this discussion is an economic transaction between the cost of venting carbon dioxide versus the value of capturing it and what's the price on that value. Mm-hmm. Bruce, what, what is your take on, on why we don't have commercial-scale capture and storage plants right now building, uh, generating electricity? Um, when you look at the, the technical challenge of taking a very large volume of gas pressurizing it, putting it in a pipe, and putting it underground, and, and hoping it stays there forever. There's some very significant technical issues and some very significant cost issues. There's been one demonstration project in the U.S. that the coal industry wanted the federal government to pay, and the federal government said it was going to put up the money, FutureGen project in Illinois. And lo and behold, it doubled in price, and the project was abandoned. And w- so what we've seen, despite a lot of money being spent by the coal industry, there is not a single demonstration project moving forward in the United States today and there's a lot of talk about clean coal. At the same time, there's not a single project powering a single home in the United States. And the consequences of our continued reliance on coal are enormous. We're blowing up the mountains in Appalachia um, to get the coal out of the ground. One in six women in America has too much mercury in their body because of mercury from uh, coal-fired power plants. And the health consequences of coal are enormous. So when we think about how do we tackle all these problems and solve the problem of global warming and all the other associated issues with coal... What people are doing, they're not thinking about how to deal with carbon because it's too technically uh, extravagant and too expensive. They're moving away from coal altogether. And I'll give a great example. When Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid assumed power in the U.S. Congress and they wanted to do their part to showcase Congress was serious about global warming, they realized they had a big problem on their hands, which is a filthy coal plant that was providing the steam for the capital. And they wanted to do their part to solve global warming. So you know what they did? They didn't talk about clean coal and trying to capture the carbon. They stopped burning coal. They bought electricity. Uh, powered from wind. They, they used natural gas to produce their steam. They bought wind power for the electricity, and they invested a lot of money in uh, energy efficiency, the trio of uh, options that have dramatically cut pollution in Washington, D.C. So when you actually get serious about the problem and you're trying to fix it, the last thing you want to do is continue to uh, rely on coal. Joe, let me ask you. So probably uh, maybe many of you saw the a 60 Minutes show the other night um, that was on on Sunday. Uh, basically focusing on Jim Rogers, the CEO of Duke Energy, who's been one of the biggest cheerleaders for uh, the urgency of doing something about global warming, has been the sort of uh, good guy uh, in the coal industry for a long time. And the, the, the piece was really uh, interesting because it, talked to, it asked him at the end, okay, so you're so serious about this. How much money have you invested in this as one of the largest carbon polluters in the United States or in the world? And he said zero. And he spent a lot... And you're... you're your association has spent a lot of money on ads. We've all seen ads for it, but we don't see a lot of stuff happening on the ground. Well, I how, disagree how, with that. How serious is the industry really about pursuing this? I disagree with that. I, uh, I believe Julio is absolutely right. Um, I was on a panel like this about three weeks ago down in North Carolina, and someone from Environment North Carolina stood up and said, well, we all know that clean coal technology is about capturing carbon. And I said, well, who's we? 
If you Google the term clean coal, you can find references to clean coal all the way back to the 1890s. And nobody was thinking about capturing carbon and putting it underground in the 1890s. They were talking about how you put coal in a furnace in your basement without having to touch it back then. Congress coined the term clean coal technology the way we use it today. And they said that clean coal technologies were those technologies that reduced traditional pollutant emissions and increased the operational efficiencies of power plants. And for the last 35 years, we've had this evolution of technology here in the United States that has allowed us to dramatically reduce pollution in the form of SO2, NOx, mercury, increase the efficiency of power plants. Over the last 35 years, we've had dramatic improvements in air quality in this country, while at the same time, the use of coal for generating electricity has nearly tripled. Now that same technological innovation is going to take us to a point we will also use technology to capture and store carbon. Now, there's been a lot of talk about who's paying what for this. The technologies that have got us to the place where we are today have got us there because the coal, the coal industry has worked in partnership with the federal government to bring these new first-of-their-kind, first-of-their-scale technologies to the marketplace. We had a technology demonstration program in the 1980s called the Clean Coal Technology Demonstration Program. That program, by law, required private industry to put up 50% of the funding for these new technologies, and the federal government matched that 50-50. At the end of the day, the private sector actually put up more money than they were required to do. I want to take some exception to Bruce's remark about the FutureGen project. That's not just the federal government putting their money there. Private industry is also putting their money there. And I think that, uh, I mean, Bruce, you need to check and see what's been talked about that project. The reason the Department of Energy said that the project cost escalated was because they made a big they made a big math error at the end of the Bush administration. Now, we were quite critical of the Bush administration's decision not to move forward with FutureGen. I think that President Obama, Senator Durbin, Secretary Chu have all been forthright about how important it is to move forward with these projects. And I think that that is exactly why you saw $3.4 billion in the Economic Recovery Act for advanced clean coal technologies. So the fact is we're making great progress with using technology to reduce the environmental footprint of using coal to generate electricity, and going forward, that will also mean carbon capture and storage for coal plants. But you okay. conveniently didn't mention carbon dioxide emissions. Emissions have increased 20% in the last 10 years. But we're also, we're also, Jeff and I had a debate on this subject on our blog this week. We're also now building a new generation of coal plants in this country that have dramatic improvements in the efficiency of those That's simply plants. not true. There are power that, plants being proposed today that, that are less efficient. The Alliant Project in Wisconsin, which we just, just defeated, was going to be less efficient than a 1970s coal plant. So, the, but, the, but let's deal with the whole thing. Uh, Prairie State is 15% more efficient than a typical coal plant. Turk is 40% more efficient. You can go all the way to the, uh, the IGCC that, uh, that uh, Southern Company is talking about building in Mississippi. That is 50% more efficient than a typical okay. coal plant. So, Joe, let me just let me say that since you brought up my, our blog uh, debate, the report I cited from the, an industry study said that, that efficiency improvements are negligible in the new coal plants. I mean, that was from an industry study. But anyway, we can, I, I want to move on from this because we don't need to get stuck in the weeds. I want to ask Ray about technology. The coal industry talks a lot about technology and about what technology can do 
Um, that is the sort of all of their ads you see. They have you know B1 bombers flying around and iPods everywhere and Macs, and they're doing everything they can to associate themselves with uh, spiffy stuff. Um, you think about technology a lot. You're an investor. Are you investing in any um, kind of carbon capture and storage technology? And what do you think about this, about this as, a, as uh, the investment future for this, the economic future for this? So I'd have to answer yes. Uh, we are investing in CCS technology, but not uh, in the conventional sense. So I think, and we've said a couple of times now, it's in the eye of the beholder and how you define clean coal. Well, so is, so is uh, capturing and sequestering or storing carbon that there's several ways to do it, uh, including never having it in the first place. So conventionally, are we investing in ways to put scrubbers or technology post-combustion in coal plants to then dispose of it? No, um, for two reasons. One, it is extremely expensive to develop. It's not a venture capital game. Uh, so we are very hopeful big industries will continue to work on it. And projections I've seen range from, you know, five to 30 years before it's practical. Uh, and a lot of that is either technology-bound or economically bound. Uh, so the price of electricity in all those scenarios goes way, way up. Estimates that go from 30 to 90 percent uh, that we would pay for electricity uh, at the wholesale uh, rate would uh, to, to implement the technologies that are post-combustion. So... So we've tried to take a different, uh, different tact on it. Are there ways to either, if you have CO2 from whatever source, can you dispose of it? And there are ways to dispose of it, uh, including using it to create more energy or to make something from it, which would be sequestering it. Could you make a valuable material? The problem is we have too much of it. So you have to make a material that is in huge quantity. So could we make ceramics or materials of some sort to pave roads or build buildings or to do you know, a massive uh, amount of infrastructure that would essentially sequester uh, CO2? And we've made a couple of investments in that, which I'm, I apologize, I cannot. These are stealth investments. I do not want any of my venture competitors to know about them. Uh, and so, uh, so I can't publicly talk about them, but basically I have given you some indication that one of them can produce uh, syngas, which would then be converted to a fuel, a transportation fuel, or to electricity, and the source is CO2 and a renewable heat source. The other is to, is to sequester it into materials of some sort. The more exciting and near-term investment areas have been uh, to either invent a new gasification technology, a gasification technology that would be helped by the use of a catalyst to capture carbon in a pure stream that could be sold or sequestered to produce natural gas. So I'm a big believer in that you can turn coal into natural gas before you burn the coal. So don't burn the coal, convert the coal. Convert its energy because it's, it's got, I mean, the advantage of coal is it's an incredibly high energy yield that it provides. It's a great energy source. So in one case, 
uh, proven technology that now we haven't done at scale, we've done it fairly good uh, uh, demo demonstration plants, that we can take coal, mined in uh, reserves that are not mineable today, so rather than chopping off Appalachian Hills, go to Wyoming, to the Powder River Basin, or go to basins that are remote from population centers, and we can't mine that coal because it's tough to transport that coal. Now, we are mining a lot of coal in the PRB, but a lot of that coal is just not economically producible because it's so far away and you have to transport it. Mine it, build the plant there. Mine the coal, gasify the coal, put it into what this country has a, you know, a, a very great pipeline, a gas pipeline, and get it to the markets. So you can do all the ugly stuff like mining coal and sequestering carbon in low population centers, so essentially putting the carbon back in where it came from, but get the fuel source moved to population centers and then use the gas to make electricity, which would be more expensive than coal, or to use the gas to heat homes. The other method we've invested in is to go to those same basins. There are many, many coal basins in the United States. There's even more in, well, there's not more, but there's a great number of basins in China and India and other places that need the energy. But in the United States, there's many coal basins where we've tested the coals. We leave the coal in the ground. Coal generates... Uh, or natural gas is generated uh, two ways. Thermogenically, so you basically use heat and pressure and you create natural gas. And biogenically, so you basically microbes that are naturally occurring can produce the hydrocarbons from the coal. And so we help do, uh, produce natural gas biogenically. And we can produce and we've proven in over 300 gas wells where we can go into the coal seams and produce more natural gas in what are declining coal-based uh, coal uh, methane wells. And so we can, now we've already in a few hundred wells produced uh, a lot of gas that way. We cannot solve the world's, you know, the, the, the entire problem that way. But it's two ways that we could use coal as a source, a cheap feedstock that we have lots of, to produce a valuable fuel that is one half, not clean, but it's one half of the carbon emissions of coal, if you burn it. Okay, okay great. Julio, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I, I just to help frame the conversation a little bit, I wanted to spend about 30 seconds on some numbers that I think are helpful. Most people don't have a clear idea of what the scale is that we're talking about, and I wanted to just take a second on that. Globally, the world emits something like 32 to 34 billion tons of carbon dioxide a year. For those of you who don't go to the store and buy a billion tons of carrots, a billion tons is twice the mass of all the human beings on Earth. So every year, the world emits something like 70 times the mass of all of humanity into carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. To stabilize atmospheric concentrations at twice the pre-industrial concentrations, at about 550 parts per million, Within 50 years, we have to avoid emitting about that much every year. We have to avoid emitting another 32 billion tons a year. That still commits us to a very high level of climate change, at 550 parts per million. There are plenty of people who think that that's not responsible or safe. 
So what we're really talking about by 2050, when people say we're going to reduce 80% below current emissions, they're saying not only are we going to avoid emitting 32 billion tons like we are today, because that's the projected global demand, we're also going to reduce our emissions by an extra, you know, 25 billion tons. When you get a feel for how big that is and how daunting the challenge is, you come to a couple of conclusions pretty quickly. And one of them is that this is not a kid's game. This is an extremely daunting task. And we really need all hands on deck. And so part of the discussion about clean coal and carbon dioxide emissions is really one that's based on these two competing trends. We have to drive CO2 down, and we have to drive energy consumption up, because that's actually just what people do. That's what the world does. That's what the global demand does. And that, those are extremely difficult tasks. But, but, but let's get back to the science. What, I mean, what Dr. Jim Hansen says is that we are on a trajectory for, ca- for climate <coughs> catastrophe. We have to end coal's contribution to global warming in 20 years, says Dr. Jim Hansen. So we have 20 years to take a very old, filthy fleet of coal plants and replace them with clean energy investments. Today, the refusal of the coal industry to retire those dinosaurs, many of them built back in the Eisenhower earlier administration, is a major threat to our ability to get the clean energy economy going, getting massive investments in in wind and solar. If you're a clean tech person today, there is no market share for you today unless we shut down a lot of those old coal plants. Bruce, let me me, Let me finish. So Dr. Hansen says we have to end our reliance on coal in 20 years. That's what the science says. So then let's work backwards. And the coal Actually, that's tr- what the scientist says. That's what Jim Hansen says, right. right. Well, he's got a pretty good track record. And he does. But and, and so, there's a difference between the science and the scientist. Right. And not all scientists choose that level. Not all scientists say you have to get rid of coal to get there. Right. But the important point he makes is, look, when you look at where the carbon is locked up underground, we have a certain amount wrapped up in oil, a certain amount wrapped up in natural gas, and a very, very large amount wrapped up in coal. So I've got to take issue with what Ray is saying, because what Hansen says is there's a way that we can avoid catastrophic climate change and burn much of the remaining oil if we do it responsibly over the next 100 years, much of the remaining natural gas. If we burn a portion of that coal, even if we could convert it to gas first, we are simply toast, says Dr. Hansen. So when we think about what does the science say and work backwards, and what's great in Washington these days is that science is back in vogue, we're actually getting serious about trying to deal with the problem. And let's start with the science which says, Coal is a major contributor, the largest contributor, so let's work backwards and not make that problem worse by building a bunch of new coal plants and let's begin retiring them with clean energy. Well, but the problem that I have with that, Bruce, is name one coal plant, even those coal plants that have replaced older, less efficient generation that your program at the Sierra Club has, has, uh, has uh, have supported. You have, su- you have denied permits or tried to deny permits for every coal plant that's out there. With one exception. Name the one. Which was FutureGen, because it was truly a demonstration project. It was going to answer the question, can it technically be done, and what is the cost? Because right now we don't know the cost. And so the industry is saying, look, clean coal's over here. But in the meantime, we're going to build all these coal plants that don't do anything about the and carbon. so what are and we so going to do? what we have said is, if we're going to solve the problem of global warming, don't be building new coal plants unless they're actually a demonstration project, which we did not oppose. So that was actually a research demonstration project. Mm-hmm. All the rest, I'm making the problem worse. So how are we going to meet growing demand for energy in this country? Right now, between now and 2030, electricity demand is projected to be 25% greater than it is today. How are we going to do that? How are we Great going question. to meet the growing demand sure. for energy around the world? The International Panel on Climate Change, uh, the IAEA, if you read Inconvenient Truth, Vice President Al Gore himself, Secretary Chu, have all come to the conclusion... And, and Jeff alluded to it earlier. Even if we stop driving cars, 
There is not a solution for how you will reduce greenhouse gas emissions on a global scale without successful deployment of carbon capture and storage technology. One of the great companies here in California is a company called Google. It's doing pretty well. And they've laid out a plan to retire all the coal plants by 2030. They have laid out the mix of wind and solar and storage and efficiency. And we, the notion that we actually have to have increasing demand, uh, Bruce, it's not based I, on science. Who can, who can argue with that uh, by 2030? What are you going to do between now and 2030? We don't make the but problem worse you've by gotta building have, You've got to have an answer between now and then. You can't continue to contribute to it. What so they, you phase you them all out. Needs? You phase them out but over the next Okay, Google, but you have to phase Google? something in. That's right. Well, when we talk about wind and solar and geothermal, you're talking about less than 1% of the energy. I don't know what it is today, which is precisely the point. If you're in that market... The coal industry is taking up half the market share. It's the oldest, most antiquated, and their lobbyists on DC, in D.C. are blocking our investments in clean energy and new jobs today. That's not true at all. Wind, says Dr. Chu, can get to 20% of our energy mix. Today it's at 1%. What's stopping it is the coal industry blocking Absolutely the renewable energy right. standard in Congress. All right. the pe- no, that's, that's, no, let me be clear about he's that. He's wrong. He's wrong. Yeah. He's absolutely wrong. That, as popular how- a position as that is, that's <laughs> flatly untrue. Flatly wrong. Right <laughs> now, the government subsidizes something between 2.5 cents and 4.5 cents any given year, the production and construction of wind farms. Wind is competitive in some markets today, and that is a massive Herculean forward effort, which our country and other countries have done, but they have done through this through massive government support and subsidy. And it still represents a fairly small fraction of generation. And the reason why, I believe, is that we're still learning about these things. And you and don't just turn the dime. We, There's and a the lot. other reason Wind is was the, the largest new generation but, but, source last year. But, but, the but other, the, excuse me, uh, just one last point. $3.5 billion, $3.4 billion in the stimulus package for fossil energy. $16.6 billion are in the stimulus package for renewables. I think it's important that we stop eating our siblings around this. We're going to need all of these carbon-free jewels. We're going to need every single one. And I do not see today that people are rushing to build coal plants because they don't want to build renewables. I see rather the opposite these days. And yet, people still have demand for electricity in this country and others. And, and, and wind and solar are used for a totally different kind of electricity in this country. We really have baseload power, sources that produce p- electricity on demand, and we have intermittent power resources. Okay, wait, I want to interrupt. And I'll tell you, I mean, this is an important story Very because important. there are people who really wrong. love – it is true. John Wellinghoff, head of FERC, last Sunday in the New York Times said, the notion that we can't replace coal plants with wind and solar is flatly wrong. This notion well, of baseload is wrong. That's right. Well, let me tell you this much. I know basin electric. Rural Electric Cooperative in North Dakota. Back three, four months ago, back in January, they had a uh, cold snap in North Dakota. It was 46 degrees below zero. They've made a huge investment in a wind farm up there, 120 megawatts of wind, and they're very proud of it. 46 below zero, they were generating electricity with everything they had just to meet customer demand. And unfortunately, the wind wasn't blowing. So this idea that we are going to take and replace traditional baseload sources with intermittent power resources is just not going to work. I mean, the thing I like best about my job is I don't have to run the negative campaign about other energy resources. We believe that we're going to need all of our available energy resources. But the bar that some people want to set for what is clean coal, we could come out and run the same campaign about wind. There's no such thing as reliable wind. It will only produce electricity when the wind is blowing. And so this reality is we are going to need all of these things working in tandem. And I want to take on, since I'm in the backyard of Google, 
Why did Google build their big facility in Council Bluffs, Iowa? They built it, and they said that they built it there because it had the cheapest electricity available to them. And guess where they get their electricity from in Council Bluffs, Iowa? From coal. And so from that standpoint, I really salute what Google's doing. Dan Riker works there. Dan's a former colleague of mine at the Department of Energy. They have a 10-year program where they're going to invest $100 million of their own money to make wind energy as cheap as coal. And I'm happy about that because I think low-cost electricity is important. But at the end of the day, we're not talking about trading apples and oranges because it's intermittent power versus baseload power. It's simply not true. Well, yeah, Bruce, why haven't we legislated in California, uh, legislated out the use of electricity generated from coal? Uh, you Why would we do You would think California would do that. You effectively have, How? right? The, How? the companion bill to, S, uh, to the SB 1368. Thank you. Right. Which prohibits California utilities from entering the long-term contracts with coal that emits more than 50% of the CO2 associated with coal plants. That, that's a hugely important caveat, though, actually. They didn't legislate out coal plants. Right. They legislated out any energy supply that's more than 1,100 pounds per megawatt hour. And how many coal plants meet that? Excuse me. There is no coal plant in the world today that hits that standard. That's right. However, there are people building these coal plants in Wyoming that are going to hit 800 pounds per megawatt hour. That's important. And quite frankly, there are people who want to buy that power in Washington and Oregon and in California where those standards are set. They didn't – this is, I think, an important distinction. When California made its legislation, they didn't ban coal. They banned emissions. And any technology that could sell into the market and hit that bar was welcome. I from Arizona. It in, and it was an incredibly visionary point. It wasn't an eat-your-peas solution. It was a market solution. Any technology that can hit that bar, you can sell a contract. And if you can't sell the contract, you can't sell your electricity in the West. So would you agree we shouldn't be building new coal plants that emit unabated CO2? Well, that's sort of like saying we shouldn't be driving leaded gasoline either. I mean, the, there's... So you agree? Uh, I don't believe that we should be building... Coal plants that will leave a legacy of large emissions. I personally think that there are technical grounds why one should be concerned about that. I have not met anybody who's... I shouldn't say that. The majority of the power companies that I've talked to are not looking to build large power plants without a carbon management strategy, partly because the financing won't work. Right now, J.P. Morgan and Zurich and all these other companies, they won't ensure they won't finance a lot of conventional coal plants. Oh, yeah, that's right, not right, true. Right, that's there are 60 coal true. plants being proposed in the United States today, many of them backed by J.P. Morgan and the large banks, with no carbon management plan. That's simply not true. 60 that, plants I, that I we're fighting. I disagree with you, Bruce. Nobody is building a coal plant today that they do not think that they're going to have to operate for 35 to 40 years to pay off the investment. That's how long these plants have to be in operation, that they are not reasonably seeing that there will be a federal carbon management program in place, that they will have to retrofit the these plants in order to meet that. That's what, That's exactly what uh, Rogers has said. That's what everybody has said. The fact is, you all want plants designed today to meet the standard of tomorrow. We didn't do that with the Clean Air Act. We've been very successful at being able to retrofit plants and be able to keep electricity reliable, keep electricity affordable, use domestic energy resources, and at the same time deliver lower emissions. And that's exactly what we'll do with CO2 going forward. Okay, so wait, wait. So I wanted to get some questions from the audience in a minute, but I want to go to one other question that's central to this and to the policy aspect of this. We can all agree that we need to do something about coal emissions, carbon emissions from coal plants, and there's a lot of money now flowing 
from the stimulus bill and, and other, presumably from the cap and trade legislation that's coming, that will go into investment and research on this. My question is, is why the coal industry is one of the biggest, oldest, most powerful, most politically favored industries in the United States. There's a huge amount of inertia in this. How, why should the public pay for this? Why, why should we, taxpayers, be, be spending billions of dollars on a technology that we do not know works at scale, whereas we do know that large-scale solar, thermal, wind, other kinds of electricity grid, smart grid, transmission issues are huge in getting renewables done. Why should this money be going to the coal industry, as I said, a big, antiquated, very rich industry, rather than some other direction? Who should be paying the footing the bill for this? And I'd like to hear some thoughts about that. Julio? And we're going to be brief on this. Super brief. (laughs) Everybody who knows me knows I'm brief. Yeah. There's two reasons why there's public benefit to this. One of them is what I alluded to before. The challenge is just colossal and we don't want to write off important options today. Based on what we know about carbon capture and sequestration, seems like the technology is going to work. It's been tested, every component of it, at large scale in many places, but we haven't actually integrated the whole thing together. It's questions about cost and performance and stuff that we want to understand. There's value to the public in really answering that question because we're facing a bifurcation point. If coal works with sequestration, we have a set of options in economics which we can pursue. If it doesn't work with sequestration, then we have to pursue a very different kind of national and global strategy to get emissions under control. There's a huge public benefit in answering that question quickly, because if we can't use sequestration, the cost of global abatement goes up 50 to 80 percent. And that's not me. That's the Stern Report. Ray, you have thought about this? uh, you, You can clean it. You can convert it to a friendlier fuel, like natural gas, or you can legislate it out of existence. And that means that all three of those have different implications to taxpayers. The ta- I don't see any way around the taxpayers doing this. Renewables projects are impossible to finance. Try to build a big wind project today or a big solar project that you cannot finance them. So new technologies, new technologies, solar, wind, you, you can't get project financing. You can't get tax equity capacity. Uh, you can't get any of the traditional ways to finance these plants because they're new. It's a new technology. So uh, the government, which has participated in the start of many, many industries in our 150 years of of doing this, uh, the government has to pay for this. There is no way around it, and it needs to choose one of those three paths or all three paths to get there. Uh, We all believe the right end place is all renewables. Let's do it with renewables. Maybe all of us agree with that. Um, you know, but we're, we just cannot get there t- next year. It okay. doesn't work. The Joe, practic- Joe, brief, brief, I think you take brief. one of two choices. You either invest in everything or you invest in nothing. I think it's terribly unfair to say we're only going to invest in those technologies that we like or we're making money off of or whatever. Go back to the Clean Coal Technology Demonstration Program. The federal government put $5 billion on the table for this program in the 1980s. In 1997, as I was leaving the Department of Energy, we looked and said, what did the American taxpayer get out of that? And through an independent study done by the Department of Energy, they found that the American taxpayer benefited because of the lower compliance costs associated with more stringent, invest- more stringent environmental standards under the Clean Air Act. 
the utility industry's cost of meeting those standards was driven down to the point that the American taxpayer saved $100 billion in energy costs. Two things that's important about that. Having worked for the government, any time the government can invest $5 billion and get back $100 billion for the taxpayer, that's a good thing. That $100 billion savings was based upon a study that was done over 10 years ago. And so there is a cost associated with bringing these new technologies to the marketplace. We either sort of don't do that and let the consumer pay that cost and leave the consumer at risk, or we spread that cost across society for all of our available energy resources so that we do three important things. Meet growing demand for energy and keep electricity reliable. Number two, where possible, use domestic energy resources. And number three, advance the environmental progress of reducing the environmental footprint of, pu- of, pr- of producing energy all across the board. Okay. Coal has been getting public subsidies for decades. There are 24,000 people a year dying because of coal emissions from outdated coal-fired power plants. On December 23rd, we saw firsthand what happens because the coal industry has been so successful at getting huge loopholes in the regulatory scheme for coal ash a complete disaster in Tennessee. That cleanup is going to cost $825 million. The coal industry doesn't play on a level playing field. At every step of the process, there are huge subsidies and loopholes. On the mining side, they're allowed to destroy Appalachia and just call that an externality. On the burning side, emitting huge amounts of mercury and carbon dioxide and soot and smog pollution. And on the ash side, as we saw with TVA, all these loopholes, and they talk about a public good, There are huge public consequences. So when we look at how we're going to solve these problems, it's critical that we look at the entire picture. And, Ray, you're simply wrong. Last year, wind produced more jobs and more megawatts of electricity, new generation, than than coal uh, by fourfold. 8,000 megawatts of new wind. So the notion that wind is not ready is simply ludicrous. We are I didn't say that. I just said that. This year we'll have half as many wind projects as last year because there's no way to fund them. There is no, simply no way to fund them and that goes unless back the to government pays. Everybody goes to Washington and says, I need this if I'm going to build a wind farm. There will be, it was $16 billion worth of, of, of wind projects projected for 2009. Yep. It simply won't happen without government funding. Because energy demand is down. And the coal, these old clunkers are it stopping us. It has nothing to do with energy, man. Yes, Nobody's it does putting we, money into we it. We don't need new generation because these old clunkers are still operating from the Eisenhower administration. If we shut those down, we'd, make up the market, we'd open up the market for clean energy, I think we and could, then we'd have the utilities back. I am totally back. on your side, Bruce. We could build five times the number of wind. But I, wind works. I love wind. Who's going to pay for it? Let's pay for it. Wind. Write checks. Get President Obama to write a check and, and triple the number of wind projects. And, okay. and then, right. then we'll right. still you will not get private equity to do it right now. And you'll still have 5% of our electricity coming from wind, and you're still going to need coal. The reality is it is not a replacement. It, they are substitute. They're not substitutes. They are complementary fuels. To John Wellinghoff from FERC, the chair of FERC, said last Sunday, we do not need to build a single new coal plant. Well, he I said we can do it with energy efficiency and clean energy. And That's what, what the expert said. in the United States here's what we said. Here's what we said to the chairman's remarks there. Number one. Square that up with uh, EIA's projection of a 25% increase in the use of uh, in the demand for electricity, 16% increase in the use of coal. Square that up with the NERC assessment that's talking about extreme reliability problems associated with res- with shrinking reserve margins, and then also square that up with what's going on around the world. I think Secretary Chu has said it. There is no such thing as a perfect energy resource. Anybody okay. in this room who thinks that, I hope you leave here tonight to get that. I'll be 
be the first person to admit that coal has its problems. Everything else has its problems. But Secretary Chu has said it very right when he has said, and I think President Obama is very pragmatic yeah, about uh, this, we're going to need to use coal. Wait, 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 I, I want to get just two short examples. Very two, short. Two very short, short examples, okay? Well, I sit questions. on the board of an advanced solar thermal company, one of the best in the world. We cannot get a project funded. Cannot. So we're going to change that business. We have five PPAs signed, cannot implement one of them. We're going to change the business into a booster and commercial steam business. Secondly, the hydromethanation I talked about, converting coal, gasifying coal to make natural gas, nowhere in the United States. We had a site in Illinois, the future gen site. We had a site in Texas. Can't get it funded. It goes to China because China will pay for it. China will build the plant, pay for the plant because they have lots of coal they want to convert into natural gas. United States, we can't get you know, private funding. The problem is the economy right now. Now, hopefully that gets fixed. But the problem is the economy. Solar thermal's ready. Wind's ready. Absolutely. But it's going to take a lot of it. And that's okay. why we've got to shut down some of these old coal plants, open up the market, and get the utilities back in the business of building new clean generation. All right. So, wait. I have a question here about economics, which I think is going to the heart of what we're talking about here. And this is from Michael Bruin at the Rainforest Action Network. The California Energy Commission says that, no, that new coal plants are more expensive than big solar or big wind. Even if, carb, if carbon, even if carbon from coal can be captured, why perpetuate our dependence on an energy source that is increasingly costly? Well, let me help you here. So let me put another, can I just simplify this another way? It's pretty clear to everyone who looks at this that the cost curve of coal is going dramatically up. Well, I disagree Wait, can with I, that. Can I finish, please? Mm-hmm. I'm the moderator. That, that, I'm the boss. That, 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 <laughs> but, but state that, that is book. your point. There are <laughs> other people who disagree All with right. you on that. Well, I, I would assert that the cost of coal plants and coal mining and everything about coal is going up. With, and without dramatic uh, t- technology breakthroughs, it's going to continue to go that way. And so we have a cost curve this way with coal. And we have a cost curve this way with renewable energy going the opposite way. So... As Michael says, why should we perpetuate investment and dependence on a source of energy that's getting increasingly costly? And, Joe, I'm going to limit you because I know this is close to your heart. But I'm going to limit you very briefly. 30 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, Jeff would have said the same thing about the, uh, the cost curve for coal with reducing SO2. And he was wrong because of technology. Let me get to the California situation. I don't want to hurt you guys' feelings. Uh, but you have a rather unique situation here in California. And not everybody else wants to be like you. You have a rather unique situation in that, number one, your population is very much concentrated along the coast, and it has a very unique climate system, and therefore your electricity needs is very, would be very different from the rest of the country. Secondly, your economy is very different from the rest of the country. And so to say what works in California will work in North Dakota or West Virginia or any place else is just simply wrong. That's why we have to have a program that works across the United States. And I think that that is why you see Congress now looking at a bill that recognizes that the energy demand in, the, in how it is met in the, in the heartland is different from the way it is met on the coast. And that's why, again, you might be able to do some things in California that you can't do in other parts of the country. It's not okay, rocket science, well, Joe. I mean, to, to Leo, fix, you excuse want, me. Uh, first of all, uh, I don't actually agree with what you said. When the cost curve for coal was going up, the cost curve for wind was going up because it was about steel, it was about talent, it was about welders, it was about a lot of things. There was this incredible run-up in cost for all this stuff until about the middle of last year when the economy tanked, and then there's been an incredible drop in cost for everything. Nobody actually knows what the cost is to build a power plant today. 
frankly. It, 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 you, you can call people and try to get estimates, but, but honestly, the actual you know, dollars per megawatt hour, nobody actually knows exactly what that looks like. But the real point, that, to, to your point, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You have to be faster than the people that you're running with. You know, <laughs> people pretend like, you know, you know, the cost of coal will go up and the cost of renewables will go down. That'll maybe even true in the short term, but the cost of coal will go back down as we develop that technology and we learn things. In the meantime, if the, cost of, coals, but if the cost of coal goes up with capture and sequestration, it's still cheaper than a nuclear power plant and it's still cheaper than a wind farm, then you still build one. But that's why Carnegie Mellon says will be the case. They say that it will be the low-cost mm -hmm. option. They, in some markets, not in all markets, in some markets, a coal plant with capture and sequestration will be the cheapest option. In some markets, a natural gas plant with carbon capture and sequestration will be the cheaper option. In well, some, wind farms and solar farms will be the cheaper market. And, and, and you should have a levelized playing field in which these things compete. If a coal plant with carbon capture and sequestration turns out to be more expensive than other kinds of electricity, then actually people won't build them because they're more cost more money. Who will hit on a very but, important point here, which is if I ask you today how much is going to cost to operate a coal plant in 20 years from now, nobody can tell me. Right. If somebody asks me how much to build a wind farm, I can tell you every year for the next 20 years because of zero fuel costs. The cost of coal, which you didn't mention, Julio, has been going up. It doubled last year. All indications are the cost of coal is going to continue to go up. If you ask, and the, the way that they've been forcing these projects through the, the utility commissions in state after state is by saying, pretend the price of carbon is zero and pretend the price of coal remains flat for the next 30, 40 years, which is simply fiction. And the commissions have been honest about this, so it's not just California, it's Minnesota, it's Wisconsin. When they do an all-in cost about what is the cost of coal, they say wind and natural gas is cheaper. So it's not just California, it's, it's the utilities who are being honest about what really is the cost of coal, how much variation is there in the future cost of carbon, how much variation is there in the future cost of coal, and it simply makes no economic sense. The places where you're seeing coal being pushed is in the, in the commissions, places like Wyoming, Kentucky, where they pretend that global warming doesn't exist and that we can continue to operate and pump out billions of tons of carbon with no consequences on our environment. Explain North Carolina. We just, a new coal plant is going up in North Carolina, the Duke uh, Cliffside plant. Uh, North Carolina, uh, sometimes people say NC stands for New California because it's a very environmentally progressive state there. It's a wholly owned subsidiary okay. of Duke Power. Okay, and, gentlemen, and gentlemen. <laughs> exactly. So um, I need to take a little break here. Uh, just to do a little radio thing here. Um, you can have a sip of water or something. Uh, we'd like to remind our listening audience that this is a program of the Commonwealth Club of California, and you are listening to our program entitled Clean Coal, Myth or Reality. Joining us tonight are Julio Friedman, Carbon Management Program Leader at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, Ray Lane, Managing Partner at Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield & Byers, Bruce Nillis, Director of the Beyond Coal Campaign at Sierra Club, and Joe Lucas, Senior Vice President at the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity. And I'm our moderator, Jeff Goodell, author of Big Coal. Now let me ask another question here that's I'm tr furiously trying to thumb through these, and it would help to uh, have some neater handwriting out there, people. <laughs> uh, have some sympathy for your poor moderator up here. Um, but this will, here's one I can read, and it also seems very really interesting. Um, <laughs> if we had the political will to find a way to spend twice what we currently spend on electricity, could we get close enough to Al Gore's Repower America Zero Carbon Electricity Goal in 10 years? So if we were willing to spend twice as much for power, could we do this? Is that, is that an achievable goal? Julio, why don't you start because you've got some, and then I want to, but brief. Okay. 
<laughs> there are those who say yes. There are those who say no. <laughs> to hit that target in 10 years is an extraordinarily difficult engineering task, and you simply can't understate that. It's not clear if doubling the cost would actually be sufficient. It's not clear whether or not you actually need to mobilize the whole country and have a Marshall Plan kind of activity or an Apollo-like level of activity to get there. All of this stuff boils back to public investment, and I think we really got to keep that in the forefront. When we say we're going to put money in energy technology, that means we're taking money away from cancer research. We're taking money away from schools. I'm a big fan of figuring out ways to get the emissions down at low cost. And if and I think, again, California's SB 1368 is a great example of how to do that. Ray? Can we, can we hit the... He's, he, Al's your partner. Yep. I'm sure you've discussed this in great detail, so give us the lowdown. It's a provocative goal. It's, um, but so was putting a man on the moon and you know, all the other analogies that are used to this trying to solve the problem. We need provocative goals. We need to set goals. We don't need to talk about the problem any longer. We don't need to talk about the solutions any longer. There are solutions. Uh, we have to find sources of capital that will go into renewables to develop them as fast as possible. And I, I believe, like I believe in the automotive industry, not a dime should go to GM, Chrysler, or Ford unless it goes into a renewable car. And not a dime should go to the coal industry unless it goes into clean coal, whatever the hell that is. And so, uh, but, but I think we're moving in the right direction, and the government is, is, is budgeted a lot of money to go into renewables, not nearly enough to try and make that goal. 20 years, it becomes much more attainable. Ray talks about provocative goals. I'll give you a provocative goal. The provocative goal should be to achieve that at no price increase or at a 25% cost decrease, because one of the things that we fail to mention here in this country is if you earn over $50,000 a year, only 3% of your income is going to cover energy-related costs. But if you earn less than $10,000 a year, which is, believe it or not, 7% of our population, nearly 50% of your income is covering energy-related costs. And so this idea of, well, let's just drive up the cost, people will conserve more and use less, that is a very regressive idea, and it hurts those people who can less, at least afford to pay more. And so that's why cost really does matter in this debate. And that's why, as Julio said, driving down the cost of this technology is so very important. We cannot allow energy costs to go up because of our economy, but certainly because of how it affects working families here in this country. Two, two quick points. At the end of the day, it's not the price per kilowatt hour that we care about. It's what people's electricity bills are. And what you've done very well in California, better than anybody else in the country, is, yes, you pay more per kilowatt, but you pay less in your bills because the state has been such done a remarkable job on energy efficiency, so you use 40% less than the average American. That is what we can be replicating around the country. It's not the rate that matters. It's what people's bills at the end of the day are. So get, get, that's an, a critical piece. And secondly, on cost, if you look at the rate hikes that have been happening in electricity prices across this country over the last year, a lot of that is based on the rocketing price of coal. Warren Buffett, who has a major share in uh, Mid-America, came out last year and said, you know what, Mid-America's not actually going to have a rate increase this year. And you know why? Because we've invested in so much wind power that has no fuel costs that we're able to stabilize our, our overall costs and not seek a rate increase in, in uh, 2008. So when we think about the ways to minimize the cost impacts, it's critical that we're thinking about zero fuel options because we know at the end of the day 
what the price of that electricity is, which you can't do with coal, which has been going up uh, in price dramatically. Although, to be fair, a lot of the skyrocketing costs in the past few years have been due to the skyrocketing cost of natural gas, which is not some endless Klondike we can just turn a spigot on. It has limits in terms of resource. It's a fossil fuel that has emissions. We need to keep our eye on all of these balls. And the and that's part of what makes it so hard. Okay, we're getting some static on the cell phones. I just want to remind people to turn off their cell phones if they happen to, to have them on. Um, I want to ask, I have a couple questions here that I maybe will try to paraphrase, because I, partly because I can't read the entire thing and partly because... Um, <laughs> They ramble a little bit, but I want to. The, the big, the big question about coal always is China. What's going on in China? And you know, the argument is sometimes made by coal industry executives that you know we'd really like to do something, but no matter what we do, it doesn't really matter what we do because China's burning so much coal and they're going to cook the planet anyway. So, or else there's the competitive argument that if we do anything, you know, here it'll raise the price of electricity and every all of the. Um, Industry and everything will move to China, uh, where they're just going to pollute and cook the planet. I think these are very um, simplistic and uh, simple-minded arguments. But I want to talk to the panelists about this, about what's going on in China. Um, I'm tempted to start with Julio again, but I think I won't. Um, Just because I know you've worked in China a lot, I don't want to go to you first for everything. But, Ray, tell me about how you think about China when when you're looking at what's going on in the investment community and how progressive they are. I mean, there's certainly, you know, what is it, the, um, the, the I don't know what the, the latest ranking is, but the third or fourth or fifth richest guy in China is a solar power entrepreneur. And you have a lot of people who are talking about the what China will do with um, scaling up solar power. And you also have, of course, China building, you know, a coal plant every 10 days or whatever the, the latest number is. So how, tell me about, how, from, from your point of view, how you think about this. Uh, I'm not an expert on China, but I'd, I'd say the, you could summarize China uh, in one word, big, meaning that they build a lot of coal plants and they're doing a lot of renewables projects and that the United States, by organizing ourselves, as we've done recently, will blow right by them on terms of renewable projects. I mean, it just, I, you know, we, we have been way, way behind. If you just measure, you know, kind of, Renewables, coal, geothermal, or I mean, uh, geothermal, wind, solar, uh, those kinds of projects would represent about 8% of our generation ability today, um, not including transportation fuels, but generation of electricity. Uh, I think less than five of the leading 30 projects in the world are in the United States. Less than five. So the rest are in Europe and Asia. Uh, I, th- I think we have the ability to surpass that you know, to, to put, to, to be more than 50% of the top projects in the world in one year. We have an ability to just blow it because we have an economy, we have a lot of innovation, everything. So I don't know that it matters right now what's going on in China. We need to get our act together here, invent the technologies that can be sold to China to clean up their act. Um, we're not going to influence them politically. Uh, they are going to do what they do because of financial gain. Capital markets work just as well there, even though they do it a very very different way than we do. Uh, but they're going to continue building coal plants as fast as they can build them because that's how they can grow their economy. Yeah. And I know you've been, you've worked, you've involved with some projects there, right? Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I'm working on a project uh, where uh, 
a coal to liquids plant wants to sequester 3 million tons of CO2 pretty much tomorrow, and we need to tell them that it'll take a couple of years to plan that, but yeah, they can probably do it. Two different things on China. One of them is China's announced a 10,000 megawatt wind farm. One farm, 10,000 megawatts. It'll go up over the next two years. In that time, they'll build 200,000 megawatts of coal plants. It just dwarfs everything else there. They're responsible for a quarter of global emissions. Almost all of that's from coal power. And we like to pretend that we can set policy in China and change that, and we can't. The second thing is there's a self-serving narrative, which I think this country tells itself, which is we're going to develop energy technologies and sell them to China. I think we've got that backwards. China is playing for keeps. They're developing an awful lot of energy technology themselves, including clean coal technology to sell to us. So uh, personally, I think that this country needs to get its game on or else we are going to be completely locked out of an advanced technology market in energy. And I think it's got to go hard and aggressive on all fronts, in renewables, in solar, in nuclear, in everything. And that certainly includes coal. <clears throat> this has been going on for a long time. I w worked with Hazel O'Leary when she was Secretary of Energy in the Clinton administration. We did the first trade mission to China on sustainable energy and development. We met with the Chinese then in the 1990s, early 1990s, and they said, look, we've got billions of people here in our country that don't have access to electricity. We need to electrify uh, our cities. We need to grow our economy. We're sitting on indigenous reserves of coal just like you are, and we're going to use coal. And just as Julio said, this is now, to me, this is like the great space race with Russia, that whoever brings this technology to the marketplace, this advanced clean coal technologies for carbon capture and storage, will, be able, will have huge opportunities to sell and commercialize that technology around the world. And the question is, going forward, are we going to deploy their technologies here, or are we going to have technologies to use here and deploy there? And I'm hopeful that we can do both. Two quick things. Um, we have 25% of the coal reserves in the world, in the United States. We have more coal than anybody else. If we actually start some showing some leadership, and I guess I'm a little more optimistic that if we show leadership, we can actually work with China. We've already seen that with a new administration in Washington. For eight years, the Bush administration has refused to go along with a global treaty on mercury, uh, primarily mercury from coal-fired power plants. One month in, Obama said, we're going to do it. We're going to be part of a binding international treaty to put in place mandatory requirements for mercury. Guess what happened? India and China, the big boogeyman, signed on the same day. So the moment we start showing leadership on carbon and we start showing responsibility for managing our carbon reserves, i.e. not putting them up into the atmosphere, we're obviously in a much better position to ask China to do its fair share. Secondly, um, we are getting left behind by China because what has been going on for the last eight years was a rush to build 150 conventional coal-fired power plants with only one exception, which was a future gen project that was going to do anything about its carbon. These are 19th century technologies with some scrubbers for SO2, some controls for nitrogen oxide, and not a lick of uh, application for doing something about global warming pollution. We build those coal plants, we would be locked up, and there's no market for clean energy, and we are done for the next 40 years. We've been able to stop, so far, uh, 96 of those projects. There are still 60 projects being rushed through in places like Wyoming and Kentucky that are going to lock up the market for the next 40 years if we don't stop them. And you wonder why China's cleaning our clock? It's because we're still investing in those 19th century technologies. Okay, so we're unfortunately getting close to the end of our program here, um, as fun as it has been. Um, and uh, we, I think we have time for probably one more question. Um, uh, and I think that I would like to wrap this up kind of taking up with what Bruce just said. It was, is, I'd like you to talk, uh, get a little bit of a, a kind of scorecard on the Obama administration about what they've been doing and how, they are how they've are trained, how they changed or failed to change the dynamic on coal. And, and 
Give me some thoughts about this, about are they pushing hard enough? Um, we've seen uh, new rules on uh, mountaintop removal mining that were released uh, today, issued today to uh, help curb some of that. Uh, we've seen uh, the EPA moving on uh, carbon dioxide as a pollutant. Uh, but then there's also a lot of people who are not terribly enthusiastic about how much political energy he's put into pushing carbon legislation forward. So um, let's go down the panel and give me some thoughts on, on that. Um, Bruce, why don't you start with this? Um, it's, uh, I had the pleasure of moving to Washington six months ago, right before the change of administration, and it's been a remarkable breath of fresh air. We now have an EPA that believes in science and is moving forward. Even though they only have three people that are political appointees, the 17,000 people working at EPA have been waiting for eight years of refusing to enforce the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and they are moving full speed ahead. And that impacts coal at every part of the life cycle. On mining, uh, they re- uh, undid some of the Bush rules yesterday involving uh, uh, mountaintop removal. Yesterday, they granted a petition to reconsider three of the Bush rules that were creating loopholes on air pollution. And they yanked the permit yesterday, or uh, announced they were yanking the permit for the Desert Rock Project in New Mexico, a massive 1,600 uh, uh, megawatt monster uh, on an Indian reservation. They are moving at lightning speed on all the things that we voted for when we voted for change. Uh, I think that uh, President Obama is very realistic and he's very pragmatic about our energy future. He recognizes that coal is going to be used here. It's going to be used around the world. Uh, But he also is very optimistic, and he says that we can invest in technology. If you haven't seen the uh, television spot that we, our organization ran, that just featured a speech that he was that he gave in Virginia, he said, "You know, this is the country that put the man on the moon." And you can't tell me that with all the great engineering and all the great science that we have at the national laboratories that we can't figure out how to mine coal that we have right here at home and do it in a way to capture and store carbon. And that does not mean that we're not going to need wind. It doesn't mean we're not going to need solar. It doesn't mean we're not going to need all of our available energy resources. We're going to do that. But coal, according to President Obama, is a part of his clean energy future for America. I think he's done a great job. I think uh, you're moving to an energy bill, hopefully passes before Memorial Day. I don't know if we have a chance of doing that, but I think, you know, we've got it. We've now got a lot of things moving. He's got a brilliant team who's behind, uh, you know, the discussion, the discussion we've had up here tonight. Uh, but he doesn't make the laws. Uh, there's 60 senators from coal states uh, plus 40 from not coal states that make the laws. And so Congress, this is going to be this is going to fall to Congress. He can lead the way. Congress has to get behind it, and uh, unfortunately, Congress gets lobbied far too much uh, in the wrong directions. So I think it's you know certainly a night and day change from the last administration, and uh, and I think we are going to have you know in lightning speed an energy bill that we can start uh, getting some work done. Okay, Julio, you get the last word. I'm going to take the last word actually to talk about something which we haven't talked much about, and, and Bruce has talked a little bit about it. A lot of people dislike coal for things that have nothing to do with carbon dioxide emissions. They have to do with mining. They have to do with criteria pollutants and mercury. They have to do with sulfur dioxide emissions. They have to do with a lot of other things. And when we talk about clean coal, people have this spectrum of the understanding in terms of where their hate level falls within this basket of stuff. Um, The thing that I'd leave you with is that actually there are technologies which have been deployed for all of it. For all of it. We actually know how to get the energy out of coal fields without mining it. We can actually go that far 
in the direction of clean coal. But the question is really, you know, how do we value those public investments to get those technologies deployed? Because the market doesn't value them today because there's no law that says you need to value them today. And until those kinds of changes take place, I'm personally excited to see this massive investment in science and technology on all fronts because we don't know where the next innovation is coming from. It's going to be coming from someplace. But as we think about clean coal moving into the future, I would ask the audience to cast it in this panoply of possibilities that need to be carefully and judiciously worked up and deployed uh, to get the kind of you know, future into the marketplace that we all, I think, so desperately wish to see. Okay. That's a great place to start. Thank you all, the panelists. This was a great conversation. It was really, really appreciated. Thank you for your spirited debate. And thank you all for coming tonight. Our thanks to our speakers for leading this uh, lively debate tonight. We also thank the audience here and our radio audience. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating the 106th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.